when their general, Cornwallis, surrendered to George Washington at Yorktown in 1781. If you saw the musical Hamilton, you probably remember the dramatic scene, the mighty British army surrendering to a ragtag band of rebels. Who would have imagined it? And the world would never be the same. The destruction of Jerusalem, God's holy city, the ruin of the temple where God promised to meet with his people, and the suffering of God's chosen nation all seemed to be things that would never happen. But they did. The world turned upside down. Why? Because of Israel's sin. And how exactly had these sins so firmly taken hold of the people? And what could they do about it now? That's what we'll explore in our final podcast on the book of Lamentations. We begin with a prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Verse 1. How the gold has lost its luster. The fine gold becomes dull. The sacred gems are scattered at every street corner. How the precious children of Zion, once worth their weight in gold, are now considered as pots of clay, the work of potter's hands. Even jackals offer their breasts to nurse their young. But my people have become heartless like ostriches in the desert. Because of thirst, the infant's tongue sticks to the roof of its mouth. The children beg for bread, but no one gives it to them. Those who once ate delicacies are destitute in the streets. Those brought up in royal purple now lie on ash heaps. The punishment of my people is greater than that of Sodom, who was overthrown in a moment without a hand turned to help her. Their princes were brighter than snow and whiter than milk, their bodies more ruddy than rubies, their appearance like sapphires. But now they are blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as a stick. Those killed by the sword are better off than those who die of famine. Racked with hunger, they waste away for lack of food from the field. With their own hands, compassionate women have cooked their own children, who became their food when my people were destroyed. The opening metaphor introduces the running theme of things being turned upside down, of the impossible becoming the actual. Gold tarnished, huge stones scattered like pebbles, parents not feeding children. Ostriches were notorious for not taking care of their young. Well-to-do people feeding on trash, bodies once glowing, now emaciated. Compassionate women who cook their own children. Yes, the world has turned upside down. Like a traumatized guide or a a TV news reporter, 
the narrator conveys the horrific details of what is happening in this devastated city. What is said about the gold losing its luster is reported by Ezekiel as well. He wrote, Their silver and gold will not be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. It will not satisfy their hunger, for it has caused them to stumble into sin. There is a strong warning for us. Money cannot bring us peace and security. Only the Lord can do that. The reference to the sacred gems being scattered is likely a reference to the temple stones tumbling down. Solomon's temple was amazing. It is estimated that with all of its gold and silver, its bronze and cedar and precious stones, it was worth, in today's dollar, $56 billion. But the temple wasn't just going to be missed because it was an impressive building. It was where God met with his people. The destruction of the temple symbolized a break, a break the people thought would never happen. The world turned upside down. As long as they had the temple, the people thought they could engage in any sin they wanted to. Do we treat our church membership the same way? Do we think, as long as I'm a member and give an offering, God doesn't really care about my sins? In Jeremiah chapter 7, the prophet asks, Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, We are safe? Safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? Verse 11. The Lord has given full vent to his wrath. He has poured out his fierce anger. He kindled a fire in Zion that consumed her foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor did any of the peoples of the world, that enemies and foes could enter the gates of Jerusalem. But it happened because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests, who shed within her the blood of the righteous. Now they grope through the streets as if they were blind. They so defiled with blood that no one dares to touch their garments. Go away, you are unclean, people cry to them. Away, away, don't touch us. When they flee and wander about, people among the nations say, They can stay here no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He no longer watches over them. The priests are shown no honor, the elders no favor. The impossible had happened. From a military and economic standpoint, Jerusalem's fall had seemed impossible. What happened? Jeremiah says it plainly. It happened because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of, our, of her priests. The priests and the prophets were to speak the Lord's word, and they had failed. They were to see that justice was done, and they themselves trampled on God's truth. They were to have been Israel's guides. Now they were groping in the streets like blind men. Verse 17. Moreover, our eyes failed, looking in vain for help. 
From our towers we watched for a nation that could not save us. People stalked us at every step, so we could not walk in our streets. Our end was near, our days were numbered, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than eagles in the sky. They chased us over the mountains and lay in wait for us in the desert. The Lord's anointed, that's the king, our very life breath was caught in their traps. We thought that under his shadow we would live among the nations. Rejoice and be glad, daughter Edom, you who live in the land of Uz. But to you the cup will be passed. You will be drunk and stripped naked. Your punishment will end, daughter Zion. He will not prolong your exile, but he will punish your sin, daughter Edom, and expose your wickedness. In the previous verses, they seem to be describing, the narrator seems to be describing the days leading up to Jerusalem's fall. Here the verses seem to speak of the fall itself. The nation had put its confidence in the wrong place. Instead of looking to the Lord, they put their trust in political allies, and they waited in vain for help. They put their trust in their king, called the anointed here, in, in a mere man. So when disaster came, there was no escape. At the end of this fourth poem, we, we read, Your punishment will end, daughter Zion. Someone has said, These words shimmer like a gemstone in the mud. In all this horrible, tragic talk, there is this one bright, shining gemstone. There is hope. It's as though the poet is saying, just hold on. Things will get better. That's chapter 4, the fourth poem. One left, chapter 5, and it's the shortest. Almost as though the poet is running out of things to say, or maybe better, running out of energy to cry. If you were hoping for a Hollywood ending where everything is neatly resolved in the end, you're not going to find it in Lamentations chapter 5. It is an intense and insistent prayer as Jeremiah teaches the people how to plead for mercy. It is the final appeal to the Lord's compassion and love. Verse 1. Remember, Lord, what has happened to us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become fatherless. Our mothers are widows. We must buy the water we drink. Our food can be had only at a price. Those who pursue us are at our heels. We are weary and find no rest. We submitted to Egypt and Assyria to get enough bread. The burden of living was almost too much to bear. As invading armies retreated, bands of robbers moved in. Lawlessness was in the streets. Food, water, firewood, the necessities of life came at a high price if they could be found at all. Verse 7. Our ancestors sinned and are no more, and we bear their punishment. Slaves rule over us, and there is no one to free us from their hands. We get our bread at the risk of our lives because of the sword in the desert. 
Her skin is as hot as an oven, feverish from hunger. Women have been violated in Zion and virgins in the town of Judah. Princes have been hung up by their hands. Elders are shown no respect. Young men toil at the millstones. Boys stagger under loads of wood. The elders are gone from the city gate. The young men have stopped their music. Joy is gone from our hearts. Our dancing has turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. When we grieve, we too must ask ourselves, did I play a role in bringing this? We've said before, and it bears repeating, you cannot connect every bit of suffering in this life with some specific sin. And I dare not, like Job's friends, try to assign a connection between someone else's suffering and their behavior, unless that connection is so obvious and it needs to be pointed out in Christian love. But in my own life, in my own circumstances, I ought to ask, did I play a role in bringing this heartache? Did I damage that relationship because I could not control my temper? Do my attitudes and actions rub off on my children? How, how do they speak about going to church? Did they hear that from me? How do they talk about and, and treat money? What, what has my influence been? And where we have sinned, we confess. To confess is to say the same thing about our sins as God says. With the people of Jerusalem, we say, Woe to us, for we have sinned. There's an old story about a man who wanted to sell his house, but with one provision. He wanted to retain ownership of one small nail protruding, protruding from the doorway. At a discount, the buyer agreed. Time passed. And one day, the former owner of the house showed up and wanted to buy his house again, while the new owner refused. The former owner reminded him of the one part of the house he still owned, that nail sticking out of the doorway. He then dragged up to the house the carcass of a dead dog and hung it on the nail. Before long, the stench became so bad the new owner of the house abandoned it and left it to its former owner. The story is meant to illustrate what happens when we hold on to just one particular sin, just a corner of our life where we don't want God to interfere. The devil will seize that one opportunity and hang all sorts of temptations on this nail to try and bring down our whole spiritual life. Is there a nail in my life? If so, I need to confess it to God. Turn to him for the forgiveness that Jesus won for me on the cross. Verse 17. Because of this, our hearts are faint. Because of these things, our eyes grow dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, with jackals prowling over it. You, Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. Why do you always forget us? Why do you forsake us so long? Restore us to yourself, Lord, that we may return. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. There is a back and forth in this last poem between despair and hope. 
like a swimmer who is struggling. He gets his head above water, only to have another wave sweep over him. Mount Zion lies desolate. You, Lord, reign forever. But then why do we suffer? Why have you forgotten us? Back and forth it goes, just as it has throughout this whole book of Lamentations. The poet wanders from sadness to anger, to disbelief to hope, and back again to sadness. And we're reminded again that grieving is not linear, and it's definitely not pretty. After all is said and done, Lamentations ends on a downer unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. That kind of ending is hard for us Westerners to take. We want a happy ending. The hero wins his quest, the bad guy is defeated, and the fireworks sparkle over the castle as the couple lives happily ever after. At, At the very least, we expect a resolution to the conflict. But Lamentations doesn't offer it. Even the rabbis didn't know how to take this. When Lamentations is read in the synagogue, verse 21 is repeated after verse 22, so that the book ends on a happy note, or at least a more hopeful note. But isn't this how we grieve? Going back and forth, one moment hopeful and the next feeling despair? Consider also that Lamentations 5 is a prayer. And didn't God already answer that prayer? Where? Well, back in chapter 3, remember? Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. Not consumed. If this were a Hollywood script, we'd move chapter 3 to the end. We'd put that comforting section at the end of Lamentations. But that's not the style of ancient Middle Eastern literature. They put the most important part, the best part, in the middle. And there the poet wrote, Yet this I call to mind, God's great promises, and therefore I have hope. Professor John Jeske once wrote, When you stick your head in Limburger cheese, the whole world stinks. If all we consider is our suffering, well, then the whole world seems depressing. So Jeremiah encourages us here, this, God's great promises, I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. That is, our life does not end in dust and ashes. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. The Apostle Paul would say to us, think about such things. Consider also that perhaps the reason we are left hanging at the end of Lamentations I mean, did the people of Jerusalem have hope or not? Is so that we can ask, if I had been among them, how would I have felt? Where would I find hope? This ending of the book allows us the opportunity for self-examination. In verses that we have hanging in our church atrium from Jeremiah chapter 29, Jeremiah writes, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. 
I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. God also has awesome plans for you and me to bring us to heaven and to refine us along the way as he works everything out for our eternal good, as Paul writes in Romans 8. The prophet Jeremiah in his book also writes in chapter 50, In those days, at that time, declares the Lord, search will be made for Israel's guilt, but there will be none. And for the sins of Judah, but none will be found. For I will forgive the remnant I spare. Lamentations teaches us to fully face and name our pain. It gives us permission to cry, to vent, to plead in the presence of God and of our brothers and sisters in Christ. It lets us ask the hard questions. Why did this have to happen? And it shows us the importance of repentance. Though our suffering, as we've been saying, may not be linked to a specific sin, repentance is always in order on this side of heaven. But most importantly, Lamentations teaches us that our hope is in the Lord. In the second to last verse, the people of Jerusalem pray, Restore us to yourself, Lord, that we may return, renew our days. The people wanted renewal. Where does that come from? It comes from the Lord. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter 40, But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. God, through his word, renews our strength so that we soar like eagles. Notice Isaiah doesn't compare us to a bunch of barnyard turkeys flopping around in the dust, not able to get off the ground. He says we are like eagles whose wings catch the thermal currents. God sustains us with his uplifting love. As we close, I, I want to again give credit to pastors Dan Hobbin and David Gostek. I've drawn heavily from both in preparing these podcasts. Next week, Lord willing, we move on to Exodus, Exodus chapter 1. Please join us. And if you find these podcasts helpful, share them with a friend. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen.